Um, spoiler alert, today's sermon is about the resurrection and eternity. And so after first service, there were a few people that kind of came up to me and had a few comments. And some of them said, well, did the sermon on eternity have to last in eternity? Um, so I'll try, to, I'll try to tailor it back um, a little bit for second service. But let me, let me give you my entire sermon from the beginning in a nutshell. Pretty much everything that I have to say today can be summed up in this phrase. So here it is. When you see the risen Jesus, it changes you. If you're a note taker, you can grab a pen, you can write that down. I'll say it again. When you see the risen Jesus, it changes you. Last week we looked at Jesus on the cross. How they drove nails through his wrists, through his feet. They pressed a crown of thorns into his head. They pierced his side with a spear. And we know that some of his last words on the cross, in the midst of his pain and suffering, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And there he died, after suffering what we deserve to suffer. And then he breathed his last. And he died. His body was taken. It was placed in a tomb. And it's at this point where his disciples, they're heartbroken. They're distraught. They're saying, what do we do now? Jesus is dead. Where do we turn now? Jesus is dead. What do we do with our lives? Jesus is dead. And then three days later, a group of women go to Jesus' tomb to put incense on his body. And this is where our text picks up. It's going to be John chapter 20. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to it. It'll be up on the screens, though, if you want to read along. And it's here in the following verses where we see people's lives changed. Verse 1. says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. These women go to the tomb. And the first thing that they notice is that the heavy stone that would have been rolled in front of the entrance to the tomb, it was no longer there. It had been rolled away. And so they peer inside and they see that Jesus' body is gone. Now these women, they don't think he's come back to life. They're not thinking resurrection. They're thinking they stole his body. Someone came and took the body of Jesus. And so they run back, they find the disciples, and they tell them, they've taken Jesus' body. Peter and John come running. They go into the tomb. They see that what the women told them is true. That sentence that says, they saw and they believed, 
It's not saying that Peter and John thought resurrection, because they didn't. They believed that what the women told them was true, because they saw with their own eyes that Jesus' body was missing, and so they left. They went back. They've got to be thinking. They killed Jesus, and now they've taken his body. Can it get any worse? But Mary, she stays at the tomb. Verse 11 says, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the front, the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them all of the things that he said to her. So you have Mary, this woman who had done life with Jesus. She'd walked with him. She'd sat at his feet as he was teaching. And now he's dead. His body is missing. Her heart is broken. She's at the tomb. She decides to leave, but I believe she's going to take one last glance into the tomb. And when she looks in, she sees two people. Scripture tells us they were angels. I don't think she knew that. It was dark. Her eyes were filled with tears. They ask her a simple question, woman, who are you looking for? And she simply responds, I'm looking for Jesus, but his body's missing. And so she turns to leave. I think she's done with this situation. She wants to just get away from anybody and everybody. She turns to walk away and she sees another person. Scripture says she thinks it's the gardener. I think that's because it's night. She's distraught. She's probably looking down. She doesn't want to interact with anybody. And this person asks, woman, woman. Who are you looking for? What, what is it that you're doing? And it's kind of like a last hope effort. She just says, well, maybe you took Jesus because that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for Jesus. Have you taken his body? If you have, tell me. I'll go and get him. And then, I love this picture, then her name is spoken. When she hears her name spoken in a voice that is all of a sudden familiar to her, I picture Jesus getting down to her level and just saying, Mary, She sees him. She goes, Jesus, it's you. You're alive. And I think she runs to him, grabs him, wraps her arms around him because Jesus' response is, do not hold on to me. I've not ascended just yet. He's saying, okay, okay, hey, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be here for a while. Why don't you run? Tell my brothers. Tell them that I'm alive. Tell them that you've seen me. And we have this beautiful picture here of Mary whose heart is broken. She's distraught. She does not know what to do. But then she sees the risen Jesus. She's filled with joy. She's filled with the hope of a message that Christ is alive. And she runs off and tells others. Because when you see the risen Jesus, it changes you. Some of the other Gospels tell us that when she reached the disciples and told them this news, they thought she was crazy. 
They thought she was an hysterical woman, didn't know what to do with herself, and so she was seeing things. They didn't believe what she told them. Verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So this group of men who chose not to believe what Mary and the other women told them, they still are thinking, no, he's dead. We saw him die. People stay dead when they're dead. They're in an upper room. The door is locked because they're afraid the same people that killed Jesus will come after them and try to kill them. And there they are when all of a sudden, Jesus appears in their midst. He says, peace. By saying peace, he's saying, don't be afraid. Don't have fear. I am alive, just as the women told you. I am resurrected. I'm back from the dead. Look at me. This is who I am. Then again, he says, peace be with you. As the Father chose me, so I choose you. And then he breathed on them. He gave them power. He gave them courage. And he sent them out. And what we see is a group of men who were captured by fear. They're hiding in a room with a locked door. And when they see the risen Jesus, they are changed into men full of joy and full of courage who go to a lost world with the message that Jesus has come back from the dead. Because when you see the risen Jesus, it changes you. Verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, One of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the door was locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You've got Thomas who is a skeptic. He's refusing to believe. He's doubting that Jesus has come back. He's in an upper room with the other disciples. Jesus appears all of a sudden. I imagine all the other disciples are going, ha ha, we told you, we told you. See, we told you. And then Jesus turns to Thomas and says, Thomas, look. Look at my hands. Touch my side. I'm real. I'm here. I'm alive. And then Thomas says one of the greatest declarations of who Jesus is. He says, you are my Lord and you are my God. And we see the picture of a skeptic a non-believer, someone who's doubting. And when they see the risen Jesus, he falls down on his knees and worships him. Because when you see the risen Jesus, it changes you. When you see the risen Jesus, it changes you. But what if it doesn't? 
What if you're unchanged? What if you don't know who Jesus is? What if you've never heard of Him or what He's done for you? What then? Or what if you know who Jesus is? You know what He's done for you, but you still feel unchanged. What then? We look at the scriptural account, and every time someone sees the risen Jesus, they are changed. But I know that it's true because it's been true in my life. I know who Jesus is. I know what He's done. But I can say to myself, I don't feel any different. I don't feel changed. We've got to ask the question, why is that? In 1863, on January 1st, President Abraham Lincoln got up in front of the nation and he issued the Emancipation Proclamation declaring that all slaves are free as of today. And everywhere people rejoiced because slaves were no longer oppressed. They were freed men and freed women. They could leave those plantations. They could do life on their own. It was a glorious day. But something that history tells us is that down in the southern parts of Texas, there was a group of about a quarter million slaves that never got word of this. They didn't know who Abraham Lincoln was. They did not know what he had done. In fact, it wasn't until June 19, 1865, nearly two and a half years later, that they finally received word that they were free. What that means is this, is that for nearly two and a half years, though they were free, they lived as slaves. For two and a half years, though they legally were freed men, freed women, they lived each and every day of their lives under oppression. For people who don't know Jesus, they've never heard of Him. They don't know what He's done. They're living each and every day of their life still in the oppression of sin. Still as slaves to sin. But I think for most of us, because we're in the Bible Belt, most of us have been to church. Most of us have heard of who Jesus is. We've heard of what He has done And this is where an even more tragic part of that story can connect with our story. You see, those quarter million slaves, on June 19th, when they received the word that they were free, they were able to leave those plantations. They were able to reunite with family members and do life on their own. But historians have written about the account that thousands of those slaves, over the course of the next couple months and years, died of malnutrition, starvation, Exposure to the elements. They lost their lives. They had to be saying in those moments, we're free, but we don't feel free. You see, they were born into slavery. It was all they knew. And it's tragic to think about this, but once they were freed, they they didn't know how to continue on with their life. They didn't know where to turn next. They could not find work. They could not find places to live. And so thousands of them over the course of the next couple months and years lost their lives. They were free, but they certainly didn't feel free. And for many of us, I know for certain as you sit in this room, you know the story of Christ. You know what he's done for you. But you can honestly sit here and say, I'm free? Really? I don't feel free. Seeing the risen Jesus changes you? Well, I don't feel changed. And I really, really looked deep into why that is because that's been true in my life. 
And what I think to be true, and what I think Scripture teaches is this, is that you will be unchanged if for whatever reason you fail to place your hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus came back from the grave. He rose again. And through the power of Christ's resurrection, we have new life that points us towards eternity. It's because of His resurrection that we have a resurrection unto eternity with Him. And that is the changing power for our life each and every day in the here and now, right in this moment. That's the changing power. And so if we miss or we undermine or for whatever reason, we determine that's not that significant. That's why we are unchanged. Because the changing power in us is the power of the resurrection that grabs a hold of us and gives us an eternity with Christ. And so if we miss that, if we de-emphasize that, we miss everything. There was a town called Corinth in the first century. It was a, it was a seaport. It was a really busy metropolitan city. There were influences from all around the world. Different cultures had come together, different philosophies, religions, ideologies. And Paul went there on his missionary journey and he preached Christ resurrected. People heard, people believed. Churches were established in Corinth. Over the course of the next couple years, these churches started to really deteriorate. Because so many of the young Christians, they were being influenced by all these other religions and philosophies and ways of life. And so they started to go back to ways of immorality. They started to blend other religions with Christianity. And most of all, there were teachers coming into the church that were teaching, when you die, you cease to exist. That's a common teaching today of many different ideologies and ways of thought. That when you die, you cease to exist. These false teachers were teaching this. And they were saying, since when you die, you cease to exist, this Jesus person who you say came back from the dead, well, that didn't happen either. Because when you're dead, you stay dead. And when Paul got word of this, he wrote a lengthy letter to the church in Corinth addressing many things. But in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he has this to say, starting in verse 1. He says, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you, I love how he starts gentle. Paul's a pastor. He's confirming them. You are believers. I'm wanting to remind you. He says, Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. He goes, You received the gospel I preached. It's what you believed. By this gospel you were saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. That He was buried and that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Paul is saying the message of the Gospel is that you were a sinner and you could not save yourself no matter what you did. And so Christ came down, took your sin and your shame upon Himself, went to a cross, suffered and died. But not the end of the story. The story is that through the power of God, He came back to life. He lived new life, which gives you a new life and a hope in eternity. That's the power of the Gospel. Believe in that power. Set your life on that hope. Why are you walking away from that? And then he starts to explain to them, if there is no resurrection, then this is our faith. He says, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, 
How can you, some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. So is your faith. If Christ is not back from the dead, this is a waste of time. Go home. If Christ has not come back to the dead, this book is a lie. Your faith, your hope is pointless if Christ has not come back from the dead. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. If it's not true, then every pastor who ever preached is a liar. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. But if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. We're still guilty of every sin if Christ has not come back from the dead. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now I'll say this. I don't believe, I could be wrong, but I don't believe that there are many people in this room who would stand up and say, yeah, I mean, he did not come back from the dead because that just doesn't happen. I don't think there are many people in this room who are trying to persuade others that Christ didn't come back from the dead. But, I think what we tend to fall into is living a life more for the here and now, more for this moment, more for today than for eternity. And by doing that, we're missing the changing power of the resurrection. Here's how Paul says it. In verse 19, he says, If only for this life, if only for today, if only for the here and now, if only for this moment, we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. What that means is, if you believe that Christ came back from the dead to give you a comfortable life, then you're missing it. If you believe that Christ came back from the dead so that you could have a full bank account, a nice home, a nice car, send your kids off to college, pay your bills on time, then you're missing it. If you think Christ came back from the dead so that you could have a wonderful, comfortable life with a big 401k, a great Roth RIA, and you can go on vacation twice a year. If you think that's why he came back from the dead and you're living only for this life, then you're completely missing it. You're missing the power of the resurrection. You're missing what it gives you because it gives you eternity. It doesn't just give you a good day today. And the thing is, if you live for eternity it will in fact change everything about the here and now. It will change everything about today. You see, living for today is like a a drop in a bucket. Living for eternity is like the ocean. It's a lot longer than if you're lucky 75, maybe 80 years here on earth. And Paul talks about this in my favorite passage of Scripture. In first service I said, If I had a tattoo, it would be of this text, but I can't do needles. They hurt too bad. But this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It's from Paul. He's writing this to the church in Philippi, starting in verse 10 of chapter 3. He says, I want to know Christ. That is such an incredible statement. We can, like, go over that so easily, but just think about that. The declaration, I want to know Christ. How many of you can stand there and say that with full honesty? I want to know Him. I want to know Jesus. I want to know Christ. It's a powerful declaration. He says, yes, to know the power of His resurrection. There is power in Christ coming back from the dead. And participation in His suffering. Becoming like Him in this death. 
and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. It's the resurrection of Christ that gives us power to resurrect into eternity, to live this life changed. But I'm not going to kid you, that's hard. It is so hard for me because I fail at it. So often throughout the day, I live for that moment. I live for pleasures. I live for comfort. I live for pleasing people. I live for being liked and accepted by others. So often I live for today. And Paul admits of that also. He continues. He says this in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all of this. He's, he's saying, okay, now let's all hold down and be honest for a second. I'm not there yet, Paul says. I'm not perfect in this. And not that I have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. There are two buts here, okay? There's one where he says, here's the ideal. Live for eternity. But I'm not perfect. I'm not there yet. I fail. And then another one. He says, but I strive for it. Through the power of Christ, I am striving, I am pressing on to try with the best of my ability and through the power of Christ to live for eternity and not for today. He says, brothers and sisters, again he says that I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting all that is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. There's so much description happening here, so much imagery. He's saying press on, straining towards. Again, he says pressing on. And what is it? It's the prize. He says twice the prize. He says it's the goal. He says it's heavenward where Christ has called us. He's saying in the life of a Christian, our hope, the hope that changes us, is that we too will be resurrected to an eternity with Christ and we, we live in the light of eternity. It changes everything for us today. That's the changing power of the resurrection. And if we miss that, we're missing the changing power. Here's how it changes us. It changes our life's pursuits. It also changes how we deal with suffering and pain in this life. Now, everybody is pursuing something. We're always in pursuit of some sort of desire. And so here in America, I mean, we are pursuing wealth. We are pursuing comfort. We are pursuing pleasure. Probably more than anywhere else in the world, we think it's indebted to us. We are deserving of those sort of things. And so we watch television. We see a certain family on TV and we say, I want to be just like that family. I want to drive what they drive, live where they live, eat what they eat, dress like they dress. And so we, we strive for those things. We see our neighbors, they have things we don't have. We want those things. We have so many pursuits in this life because, and Paul says this in chapter 15 also of 1 Corinthians, he says, if this life is all that matters, then your battle cry should be, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. What he means by that is this, if there is no eternity, then by all means, live it up today, because this is all you have. If there is no eternity, then eat, drink, be merry, buy whatever you want, do whatever you want, go wherever you want. Pretty much live la vida loca, be crazy, have fun, because if you have nothing else other than this life, then live for this life. But if there's eternity, then live for eternity, because it's much longer, right? Live for eternity is what he says. So it will change our pursuits. It will change what you do with your money. 
If this life is all that matters, then your money will be all for you. But if you live for eternity and for the kingdom of God, where you funnel your money will change. You'll realize that there are millions of slaves all around the world. Boys, girls, men and women. They've been taken from their families. They've been put into captivity. And there are ministries, there are organizations who need funding in order to get these people out of captivity and slavery to rehabilitate them into society, to introduce them to the gospel. Your money can be poured in that direction. If eternity matters, it will change what you do with your money. There are people all around the world who have never heard the gospel. They don't have a hope of eternity. Anna was in here this morning. She's getting ready to go back to Asia tomorrow. It's what Christ has called her to, to go to a lost people group. She needs funding. If you care about eternity... If you realize that we have that hope, that's what really matters, your money will funnel in that direction. It'll change what you do with your money. It'll change your relationships. Now, relationships are super important. I'm a relational person. But I think we have really messed it up. I think for a lot of us, we pursue relationships for selfish gain. I think we pursue relationships so that we can be validated by these people. We want to be friends with the right people, with the cool people. They talk the right way. They eat the right way. They dress the right way. They make me look good because they're in my life. And I think we strive for these relationships to be validated. You see it on Facebook all the time, don't you? We use friendships and relationships to validate ourselves. And we use other people for ourselves. But if you live in the light of eternity, you will use the power of a relationship to bring other Christians along with you so that you can pursue Jesus together, so that you can encourage each other, strengthen each other in your walk with Christ, and it will also give you a desire for the lost. You'll build relationships with people who don't know Jesus because your heart is broken for people who will lose their life without Christ and go to an eternity without Christ. And you'll have lost people in your life You'll become friends with them. You'll have them in your home. You'll sit down at dinner with them. And you will hope and pray that they see Christ in you so that they can get the changing power of Christ as well. It will change how you do relationships. It will change kind of what we spend our time doing. I'll pick on guys for a second. As guys, we have tons of hobbies. Most of our hobbies get us out of the house. We go golfing. We play in men's leagues. We go, maybe it's rock climbing, hunting, to games, whatever it is. We have a lot of hobbies that get us out of the house. And those are fine. There's nothing wrong with a hobby. But I know for certain that sometimes it can become so great that it takes away from your marriage. It takes away from your children. And some men, some who I know, are unwilling to give these things up even though it is obviously hurting their family. Because they say, it's my time. I deserve it. But if you have a focus on eternity and you realize the value in this person that you call your spouse, and how important it is that you walk together in this relationship towards Christ, you will be willing to give up time on your hobbies. And with your children as a parent, you will understand the importance of teaching Christ to your kids. Not just teaching them, but being Jesus for them to see that they know they are loved by you. They know that you want to be with them and around them and you rejoice because of the life that they have and you are always inviting them into your life. And one day they will say, I saw Jesus in you and that's why I wanted him. 
Because if you have an eternal focus, it will change what you do with your time. It will change how you parent. Having an eternal focus will change how you experience pain and suffering. About three years ago, I got a phone call from my mother-in-law. She told me she needed me to go home and find Rachel and tell her that her father had just passed away. He was 47 years old, had liver complications, but none of us saw that coming. And I had to drive home from school, walk into our apartment, and tell my wife that her dad just died. We cried for days. We were angry. We were frustrated. We had so many questions. And that's normal. And I've done counseling, and I've met with families who have lost loved ones. I've met with families who don't have Christ in their life, and I've met with families who do have Christ in their life. And I've noticed one discernible difference. Families who don't know Christ, in those moments they are asking things like, what now? They're gone. What do we do? We'll never see them again. How can we get through this? And they're brokenhearted because they don't have hope for a future. And with Christian families, man, they are still brokenhearted. Our hearts were broken when we heard of that. But what I hear them saying is this. I don't know how people do this without the hope of Christ. I don't know how people do this without the hope that we will see them again someday. And what gave us hope and put a smile on our face eventually, weeks later, months later, was that we knew that when Patrick breathed his last and his eyes closed, they opened again in the presence of Jesus and he said, welcome home. To be with me forever. And that gave us hope. It changes how you experience loss. It changes how you deal with stress. There was a Stanford study recently. It was a brilliant study, and it said this. Everybody's stressed. (laughs) Right? Can we get an amen? Everybody has stress. Um, In the medical community, they've determined that stress can cause so many illnesses. It's even been linked to the development of cancerous tumors in the body. Stress is rough. Most studies have also shown that the number one cause of stress is financial. In nearly everybody's life, the number one cause of stress is financial. And I think that that is also linked to our pursuits in life. So hear me out. I think that we are so in pursuit of things in this world. We are so in pursuit of having what everybody else has, thinking that we can't do life without it, that we are willing to go into debt, that we are willing to buy things that we don't need and that we shouldn't. We are so willing to live outside of our means that after we purchase everything that gives us joy, we then look at our bank account and we go, how are we going to pay the bills now? What are we going to turn to now? We've got all these things we need to purchase, all these things we have to pay off because we bought them. Yeah, they're sitting in a garage somewhere, but, but we bought them, we needed them, right? And now we don't know what we're going to do financially. And I think that if you have a focus on eternity, what will change for you is this. I don't need those things. Not that you won't have stress over finances. That's going to happen. But it won't be the same sort of stress because you won't be fighting to keep up with everybody else. You won't be fighting to have all of these toys, all of these pleasures. You'll say, my hope's in eternity. I don't need those things. Last of all, the hope in eternity, I believe, changes this. Now, this is something that in my life I have not experienced. So I'm speaking from a heart that has spoken with some other people who have dealt with this firsthand. And it's loneliness. It's the widow or the widower who has lost their spouse after years of marriage. It's the man or woman who wishes that they were married, but for whatever reason, that's never happened 
for them. It's the person who goes off to college and doesn't know anybody, and they have no friends and no community. It's loneliness. That is not easy. It never will be an easy thing. It's nothing to just, you know, say, oh, well, get over it in a snap. No. But with time and talking to people who have experienced in this life, they told me directly, it's a daily trusting in Jesus more and more and more to where I can say, I have a hope in Him because of what He has given me beyond this life. He has given me a hope and a future. And Paul even says this. Paul says that singleness can be a blessing. Singleness can be a blessing. He says a married man is concerned about the affairs of this life, what his wife needs, what his family needs. But an unmarried person, he can first and foremost work for the kingdom of God. That's a hard truth to wrap our minds around. But it's in Scripture. And it's saying through the power of Christ and a hope in eternity that it can change your current circumstances, even loneliness. As the band comes back up, I just want to once again just acknowledge that this process, just as Paul said, is not something that happens like that. It's not something that happens overnight that we learn to live for eternity because we live for today so often. I do that. We so often live for today and not for eternity. But as the gospel teaches us that it is Christ and the power of His resurrection that power that works in us. Paul says this in Romans chapter 8. It's the same power that brought Christ back from the dead that lives in you if you have the Spirit of God inside of you. That same power is in us. It gives us a hope for eternity and it changes everything about our current circumstances if that's where our hope is placed. If that's what we look forward to. If that's what we press on towards. That's what Scripture teaches. If this morning, if that touched you, if you feel like God is just saying, I need to pray with someone, I need to confess that I've been living for this life, there are going to be some people down front, you can come up to them, they will pray for you, they will encourage you. But I challenge all of us to start asking Christ, give me a heart that lives for eternity and not for today, because that is the changing power of Christ.